You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a space development company with embedded urban planning values, looking to help build and shape a more equitable and just future for all of humanity as we become a space-faring society. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos. By engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry, and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Welcome to another episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Suarez, to discuss his latest space tech thriller and new book, Critical Mass. Fans of Delta V, one of his previous novels, will be delighted to pick back up where the previous crew left off. We'll be discussing Daniel's inspiration behind these novels, what to expect from Critical Mass, which is set to publicly release on January 31st, you can pre-order it now, and what he believes lies ahead for the future of the space industry. I do think we absolutely need to be doing wind turbines and solar panels and all of that, but it's not gonna be enough. And we're gonna need to take that time we have before we start to experience serious disruption to our civilization to build cislunar industry, deep space industry and energy creation to try to solve the problems on Earth, and then to offer economic opportunity to everyone where they can look forward to the future. On today's show, we are joined by Daniel Suarez. Daniel is a New York Times bestselling author, TED Global Speaker, and former systems analyst whose unique brand of high-tech fiction explores the causes and impacts of rapid technological change. The author of seven novels, he has a track record of anticipating what's next, and his latest book, Critical Mass, due out from Dutton Publishing on January 31st, brings readers on a daring journey to the new frontier of private space exploration. The second book in the Delta V series, Critical Mass realistically portrays humanity's urgent transition from an earthbound to a space-faring civilization and brings home the message of why that's critical to our future. And as a huge fan of your writing myself, Daniel, I am very excited to have you on the podcast today. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Now, you've written about a wide variety of futuristic topics, but have more recently examined the future of space and how that impacts Earth society. What led you to become interested in space technology and ultimately write about it? Well, I'd have to go back quite a few years. As a matter of fact, actually, from my childhood, I'd always been fascinated by space. You might agree with this, but Carl Sagan's Cosmos was really just fundamentally huge for me. I mean, it opened my world as a young boy. And then also Gerard K. O'Neill's High Frontier would spend long hours in the public library reading books. And that was one of the books that I read several times. 
a deeply human book, but also exciting, this vision of a future that I was convinced was just absolutely going to be happening by the time I was a young adult. And of course, we all know the actual trajectory. Very excited about the space shuttle launch in 1980, followed all of that. And then, of course, got busy in software development, but always in the back of my mind, I'd been interested in space and kept in touch with it. And as I became a full-time novelist, I'd always been nursing this idea of a story that I wanted to tell and was very interested in, and that was this. How do we, here in the present, make that leap into that sci-fi future that we always imagine? That is so common in so much sci-fi, it's sort of a fait accompli that we'll have this vast celestial civilization, when really there are some very major concerns about whether we're going to be here in the same form in 20, 30, 50 years. I mean, we have grave concerns. So I really wanted to dispense with all the hand-waving and try to drill into exactly how we might make that leap. And that's what started me thinking about the Delta V series. And of course, I began with the first book, which dealt with near-Earth asteroid money, pointedly, not the asteroid belt. And all of this came about from interviewing a great many experts, physicists, scientists, NASA policymakers, entrepreneurs, one or two billionaires. And I was fortunate enough to get the entree to do that because of my first book, which became a New York Times bestseller, unaccountably. And that was a book that expanded my personal network, people I could talk to, people who messaged me, who were big in tech and other industries, and in government, who basically wanted to talk to me about my ideas. And then I could ask them questions about what they knew. And that set the groundwork for writing this series and trying to make it as realistic as possible. Well, and I think that that's one of the most striking things about your novels is just the level of detail and research that goes into them. I remember reading Delta V as a grad student at the Colorado School of Mines in the Space Resources Program, which is very fitting. And myself and all my peers in the program, we absolutely love Delta V you know, the recurring theme in all of our conversations was it feels like it's written by such an insider. It is just so thoroughly thought out. I feel like that's one of the things that I really appreciate. And I know others do as well about your books. And certainly if that's not reason enough for people in the space industry to check them out, but also people outside the space industry, right? I think your writing is very accessible. It explains a lot of these concepts and ideas and themes in such a way that I feel like somebody who really knows nothing at this point about the space industry, no previous knowledge, could come in and read this and really start to feel like they have sort of an understanding a bit of the lay of the land. And of course, I think it's very exciting because it lays out all these emerging concepts that a lot of folks are working very hard to actually actualize and make happen. And I want to provide just a little snippet here of the book synopsis, if I may, because I think it's really going to entice listeners to check it out. So here we go. In 2033, a crew of eight set off into deep space for a historic, though unsanctioned, commercial asteroid mining mission. Now, four years later, just three survivors make it back and even then only with the aid of a pair of crewmates who volunteer to stay behind. In order to rescue their stranded colleagues on the asteroid's next approach to Earth, 
the crew must use the resources they've returned to lunar orbit to develop and build a spacecraft faster and more advanced than anything ever conceived. And to build their spacecraft, they'll need to establish, no big deal here, the first spin gravity station in deep space, the first solar power satellite, deep space refinery, and mining infrastructure on the moon's surface, all before the relentless deadline of the asteroids approach. So if that just kind of struck you or or sort of caught your fancy, definitely check out Critical Mass because that's what this book is all about. In this episode here, we're not going to give away any spoilers. We're going to dance around them because I know our audience is going to be eagerly picking up a copy of this. But I want to go back to kind of that inspiration that you had talked about to write Critical Mass. How did you go about choosing the title for this second part of the series? I'm so gratified when you said just a few moments ago about the technical rigor, let's call it, that I put into my work. And that's part of what motivates me is to connect mainstream audiences to the absolutely fascinating scientific and technical work being done is very often not really known widely, or at least understood. And what I've found, and this is again, you know, the seventh novel, what I've found is by writing a story that makes people feel something, makes people care about characters, it is remarkable the nuanced technical and scientific information they can ingest. And I say this because of the emails that I received from readers who say, oh, I get this now, or I saw this in the news, and they can connect these things. And also have admiration for, the, as I said, tremendous work being done by these scientists and these innovators and these researchers. So they're my superheroes. I'm trying to ably represent what they're achieving and to popularize it. I would not put myself under the category of a Carl Sagan or a Neil deGrasse Tyson in terms of popularizing science. I have a little more poetic license that being a fiction writer, I can go a little beyond the edge of what exists now and play with more things and also combine them in unexpected ways. If I have a superpower, it is that, is combining things that are happening in surprising and unexpected ways based upon all sorts of conversations I've had with researchers and innovators. So as far as the idea for the title, what it means in this book, and I'll go back to the first book, Delta V, and what Delta V means. And of course, for your audience, that will be apparent, but this change in velocity to me, is also symbolic in that we need to accelerate things. We need to change the velocity of humanity. And in being good stewards of the entire biosphere is going to require some changes. So that's quite symbolic for me, as is critical mass, because that has multiple meanings, both the literal one, that is in order to establish a permanent human presence in deep space, we need to obtain a critical mass of materials, a critical mass of oxygen and energy and all of these things and marshal them together in space to recreate our biosphere, to make life possible and sustainable in orbit. But also it is symbolic in the sense that we need a critical mass of people to realize that because it is remarkable what can be achieved when that balance tips. And I think we've seen it partly with climate change, there's a critical mass of people who are now realizing that this is an urgent issue that requires dedicated funding. It's not quite where it needs to be, but it is certainly at the beginning, and you can sense that scale tipping. And in the same way, I think a critical mass of people on Earth understanding why deep space industry and commerce is so important 
to this day, when I bring it up to people, the idea of going into space, spending billions of dollars and building infrastructure there, I think it's unfortunately all too common that people say, well, we have problems here on Earth. And I think you and I would both agree that in order to solve many of those problems, obtaining additional resources and energy in space can really help us in that effort in trying to ameliorate climate change, to provide economic growth and so on. So I think they're intricately tied together. I take it as my self-appointed responsibility to try to, to explain this to people, to join that chorus of voices who are trying to help people understand not only why it's important, but that it's actually exciting. And it, it brings us to a super fascinating future with limitless possibilities, as opposed to one of less and less and more dire conditions. You know, I will say that that is definitely a consistent theme that you've struck across both books and especially Critical Mass is this theme of balancing the advancement of space exploration. And even a lot of the characters grapple with like, okay, how do we think about what we're doing in space and how do we tie those benefits back to Earth? It's a consistent conversation as I think it is for many in the industry and certainly should be, but you're absolutely right. You know, I think people need to have an optimistic future to look forward to. We need to remain hopeful. That doesn't mean we work any less hard towards solving the problems we need to solve, but we need to remain optimistic. And that certainly is something that comes through in your work. And in fact, in the book, there's actually a very interesting exchange or climate change debate that occurs amongst the crew and how different people and their respective countries think about various solutions to the crisis differently. Do you believe that the only way to slow or correct climate change is to have a united global strategy? Well, clearly that's going to be necessary. And just recently, some additional information to support this. There is a report out from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact, I believe is the name of it. And the Washington Post did a very interesting study. They used graphics to try to represent these 1,200 potential strategies for ameliorating climate change. And what's really interesting about that is a 1,000 of them are completely unworkable at this point in time. And what it's showing is that whereas we may have been able to bring this to a soft landing, let's say, a couple of decades ago, increasingly we're going to have to take much more active measures to try to contain global warming at or around 1.5 degrees Celsius, but certainly less than 2 degrees Celsius. And really, out of those 1,200 different scenarios, at this point, there's only a couple of dozen that could possibly work. And all of them are going to require really extraordinary efforts, disruptive efforts. And even those, most of them have a multi-decade period where we will be far outstripping even two degrees. So that is a, a major disruption. And so we have to get serious. And this is why I think space is an enormous opportunity because again, we're going to need clean energy in order to try to fix this problem. And more and more scientists are coming to the conclusion that we need not just to reduce emissions, but to actively pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. And there is technology to do that. It's not terribly complex, but it requires a great deal of energy. And of course, most of your listeners are probably aware of Climeworks and companies like that, that have test beds. But again, finding the terawatts of energy that will be needed to do that. And when I say energy, I mean terawatts of clean energy to achieve that is Honestly, I don't see how that is possible without space. And then there's also 
the fact that as the climate warms, we will see increasing chaos, economic, political, and otherwise, on the planet. One can imagine scenarios where offshore wind turbine farms get decimated by typhoons or hurricanes, mudslides and wildfires wiping out entire solar plant installations. So space offers a place where we can start to build lasting infrastructure without having to directly deal with those planet-side impacts. And I, I think there will be increasing, I won't say chaos, but let's say disruption and disorder. And so space offers a tremendous opportunity in that regard. But one other thing that I would say that space offers goes to the overview effect, that by going up into space and seeing this jewel of the earth, isolated as it is in the cosmos, and that it's just us, those borders dissolve, and hopefully we can learn to work together as human beings to solve this problem. And I think that's much more possible out in space as we absolutely rely upon one another for survival in that environment, learn to trust, and then hopefully to go past our traditional fears. And now a quick word from our gold sponsor, Multiverse Media. We are currently witnessing the birth of a robust, sustainable economy within cislunar space. What is cislunar space? Well, it's the part of space that ranges from low Earth orbit out to geostationary orbit, and then beyond toward the moon's surface. This cislunar economy will involve a much more interconnected paradigm for space development. For a snapshot and user guide to the players and opportunities ahead, New Space Global, a multiverse media property, has produced a report titled Cislunar Market Opportunities. To get your copy, please go to cislunar.report and use coupon code CITIZEN10 for 10% off a single user license. Thank you again to Multiverse Media for sponsoring Celestial Citizen this year. Now, back to the show. I'm glad you brought up the overview effect because it's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. And it's definitely something that was discussed quite a lot in Critical Mass, this feeling that everyone on Earth is part of this greater human family. How do you hope that that message impacts the way that people live their lives, whether they're readers, just enthusiasts about space, or actual professionals working in the space industry? I'd say the key thing that I hope it will achieve is increased support for what people in your industry are actually doing, so that it doesn't seem like some disconnected hobby of some billionaire, because it is far more than that. And of course, in the story, there are different approaches that go beyond billionaires, which I'm sure we'll touch upon later in this discussion. But it's important that people feel that they have a stake in it, that they have a voice or a seat at the table, because it is going to affect everyone. And I say they obviously need to also participate in the upside. There's always, when it comes to public money and also with launch approvals and everything else, the public is going to have a voice in it. And I think rightly so. But support by the public for multi-billion dollar expenditures. And we've seen NASA make bets on private companies to help them get started, being a sort of lighthouse customer for some of these startups to help it get moving. And as that happens, the public needs to understand why it's important. And so this is where being a fiction writer really helps. Because again, I can go a little further out 
it is not easy for a scientist or certainly a government official to spin a scenario quite like mine. Because again, it's going to have many dimensions. It can be somewhat controversial. And so people in those positions of authority and official capacity will have difficulty telling those stories. But if I can tell a story that helps the public understand what's at stake and what the opportunities are, and also what the risks are, all of that stuff rolled together, that's my goal to try to get them excited about the possibilities and awake about the risks. And you're absolutely right. Certainly was acknowledged at many points in the book that people of Earth and the crew of these adventurous space missions really wanted space to be everyone's domain, not just for billionaires, not just for superpowers. It was definitely like a recurring theme throughout, at times a point of tension in the plot line. Do you think that there is still time to make space accessible and equitable for all people and countries in time? Or do you think that we are already pretty far down this path of having space as a domain be somewhat dominated by certain companies or certain countries? I think we're at that crossroads now. I don't think it's at all too late. And as I meet more and more people in the space industry and in governments, I feel more optimistic, actually, because it's remarkable. Even people in the military seem to be aware of this as an issue. The idea of getting public buy-in between different countries, building a rule of law in space, in the beginnings of an economy that different countries share in to do trade and to enforce contracts and so on. There's, I think, the beginning to the rudiments of that already. So I am hopeful you are correct when you express some concern that it needs to be resolved soon. In other words, we have to make concrete choices that are going to persist. In other words, that inertia from these early decisions will affect what's possible later on. And so the more people talk about this now, the better. I think we are at that crossroads right now. And we can see that with the establishment of even things like Space Force. I think a lot of people had a good laugh when they first heard about that. But the idea of having at least some organization, and I, I always think of Space Force being just one organization and other countries would have, I mean, we have police forces, right? If it can take shape to try to enforce an international law where people say, okay, these are going to be the rules of the road in space. We all sit down. We're all going to have a role in trying to actively reinforce each other's investments and protect our interests in space. But let's not just do so in a universal way without discussion first. What are those rules going to be? And I do think the Artemis Accords do a good job at starting that discussion. And of course, that's an agreement that will expand as we encounter and get past the obstacles and difficulties going forward. There's going to be so many discussions that probably haven't even occurred to us yet. There's enough loopholes in the law. And of course, I explore that to a great degree in this story. And these are the parts that I think would probably ruffle some feathers with policy decision makers. Some of the events that occur in my book would cause nightmares probably for certain NASA and other officials, but it's a frontier. And so I really wanted to depict that, not scrambled, but let's say a scrum, the ambitions for all these imaginative and risk-embracing people. I wanted to tell that story. And what's nice is that you do, as you just pointed out, provide a lot of context for legal frameworks for space, such as what you just brought up, the Artemis Accords and the Outer Space Treaty. Although I have the Saul Goodman of space as the lawyer for my characters, he's basically uh, 
Better Call Saul, he's a, <laughs> yeah. let's say, a, an imaginative attorney, space attorney. For sure. Then put in uh, a very interesting position, shall we say, beyond just being a lawyer. But one of the things that struck me is how are you doing all of the legal research to kind of make these plot lines seem so realistic? I would definitely refer readers to the further reading section at the back of my books, which I always have in every single one of my books. I do an obscene amount of research for all of my books and pandemic made it more difficult for me to meet with people. One of the things that I love to do when I'm preparing for a new book is to go visit and speak with people. And like I said, that was not as readily possible for parts of the research of this. So Zoom took the place of some of that. But I absolutely met and spoke with many different entrepreneurs and some legal people, the chief economist of NASA, so many people asking questions that would give them pause, like, oh boy, you know. But again, the great thing is because I am an artist, I can ask questions in this fictional universe. It's not like I'm doing a policy paper or a white paper. And so I can go a little further and combine things in unusual ways. A good example of that is perhaps the blockchain that the Cislunar Commodity Exchange in this in critical mass uses. Now, a lot of people, they hear about crypto and blockchain and they, oh, yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme. But again, you know, if we think of these new economic systems, when I pose a question of whose economy, whose currency even would be used in space, it's amazing when you watch policy people clench up because that is just one of those basic things like, okay, who's in charge out there? Big question. And again, if we have an urgent need to get busy in space to help alleviate climate change, we're going to have to start making some moves now. And we need to start resolving these questions now. So that gave me the impetus to try to go do research like, how are we going to do commercial exchange in space? What form would it take? Let's put it this way. I'll take the work of somebody like Bruce Gahan, an economist up at Stanford, and apologies to him as I say this, because you know any crimes against physics or economics are my own, not theirs. You know, I, <laughs> they will give me advice, and then I'll take that and extend it a little further. Right. But the idea for a cislunar commodity exchange came from, well, at least I first learned of it from his work. And then I would take that and combine that with other work from people in the blockchain space. Now, blockchain to me, the idea of a triple entry ledger is a absolutely momentous discovery. We take double entry bookkeeping as a tremendous advance for commerce here on earth. The idea of having a transparent ledger where everyone can see the entries, not just both sides in the, a transaction, would be super useful in an unsettled area like space where there's really no law enforcement. And so you structure, you bake into a protocol the security you need in order to do safe exchange between people. And so this is one of the things that blockchain allows. But also, it's not a cryptocurrency in the sense that you're mining by doing what's called proof of work. Instead, you're basing the value of your new currency, not on something theoretical, but on energy and resources, things that have intrinsic value. It is the next step to my mind in what blockchain could be in a cryptocurrency. Well, and I do think it's the way that you had laid it out in the book was, again, you know, very interesting how you tied it to actual resources and energy, as you just mentioned, which was quite interesting. I think the other thing about it, too, was the way that you were talking about it, this decentralized structure to obviously, you know, attempt. And I'm sure there's still a lot to figure out there in terms of how to make sure that billionaires don't kind of 
jump in and inundate the system or that there still is enough to kind of go around, so to speak, at least in terms of opportunity to participate. I think the other thing, though, is what was pretty neat about it is that the cislunar economy was just inherently linked to Earth and the improvement of Earth's situation. That reverse bonding curve, that it's a protocol, a smart contract built into it. And again, billionaires could not simply buy into the currency. of they, In other words, if you pull CO2 out of the atmosphere, you get some of the currency that you can use to invest in the cislunar commodity exchange. And that's pretty much the only way to do it, other than to be specifically invited onto the space station to do a startup there, which would be you're doing something super interesting in space and useful. So I think that was definitely at least something that I had never heard of, you know, someone proposing before. So that was super interesting. Endless conversations with crypto people and blockchain experts. And this is the thing. The level of research for this book was really almost verging on the obscene. And then to (laughs) organize and marsh all of that in the service of a story that I am really endeavoring to make involving and to get people engrossed in the trajectory of these characters while still making it technologically accurate, that was quite a task. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine because all of these different topics, frankly, could be several books in and of themselves. (laughs) So combining all of it and then also having, I think there's a nice tempo to the way that the book reads as well. And I remember this from Delta V where obviously it's a thriller, so it's very fast paced, but there's like a nice incremental build and then kind of like to get to the climax of the story, which is really what you hope for as a reader, of course. I achieved that by writing twice the book I need <laughs> and then cutting half of it out. It's, it's really? that simple. Wow. First draft of Delta V, for example, was almost 190,000 pages and I had to cut it down to about 140 some odd thousand. But I do find that What a lot of that is to me is scaffolding that I use to erect my characters. And sort of as the creator, I need to see as the author what the characters are doing slightly beyond a scene, what leads up to and after it. And then once I have it all set, I can start to pull some of that scaffolding away. That editing, that very brutal editing procedure is what helps in the pacing because then I can pull that up. I mean, I could write and do write a thousand page book and then I reduce it to 450 to 500 pages, something like that. That actually is even, that blows my mind. And also makes me want to read like the uncut, unedited version. Oh, no, no, never happened. (laughs) No, it's on the the cutting room floor for a reason. Again, (laughs) nobody wants the scaffolding. You want to see the the sculpture of David. But also I should point out that even though Critical Mass is a sequel of Mm -hmm. Delta V, it can be read standalone. So Mm -hmm. that was yet another challenge that I presented for myself in that I wanted people to be able to step into this story at either point. Mm-hmm. I personally think that it's a better experience to read it all the way through, but you can step in for critical mass. That's definitely true, and that's a good point. Now, I do want to go back, and I don't know if you're going to answer this question or not. Um, <laughs> I'm bracing myself. <laughs> but across both Delta V and critical mass, you created these very intriguing characters, and some of them had very big and bold personalities. Were any of these characters inspired by actual people in the space community? I declined to answer on the grounds that may incriminate me. No, I'm (laughs) kidding. Definitely, but I won't say whom because they're composites at best. Certainly, like Nathan Joyce, the billionaire character is, well, he's complicated. 
You know, like most people who have vast resources and have grand ambitions, they do both good and bad things. And so you combine that with the vast opportunities of the ultimate frontier, and it creates a really magnified, outsized personality for an individual. I mean, you can make an outsized influence at this point in time if you invest correctly in space. Mm-hmm. And that's how 80 years from now, you've got somebody who's worth trillions of dollars and their family is doing enormous things that span the world. We are at that point in time where there's going to be a step change in civilization. I think the amount of resources and energy that will be available to humanity will be just vastly increased. Mm-hmm. Or we fail at that and we start to spiral down into less and less. And that is an alarming situation and one we obviously want to avoid. I don't know about you. I sometimes have this conversation with people who are concerned about sustainability and they think that we might have to go through degrowth. And you know, I, I always like to point out to people who hold that view that 3 billion people on this planet live in real serious poverty and have limited means And the idea of preventing people like that from having a better life for their children, for seeking that because it's bad for the environment, I view it as an unethical thing. And yet we can't do nothing. We certainly can't power it by coal or any of the existing means we've done. So in that way, fossil fuel was a really useful fuel to industrialize civilization and get us started to vastly grow our population and hopefully increase the number of Einsteins and Newtons and whatnot in the population. And now I think the task that has fallen on to us is to then get to the next step. And I do think we absolutely need to be doing wind turbines and solar panels and all of that, but it's not going to be enough. And we're going to need to take that time we have before we start to experience serious disruption to our civilization to build cislunar industry, deep space industry and energy creation to try to solve the problems on earth, to both resolve climate change And then to offer economic opportunity to everyone where they can look forward to the future. Well, and it's interesting too, because one of the things that has always struck me is that there's not more collaboration between folks in climate science and space science. There is to a certain extent. NASA definitely has a lot of resources and budget going towards climate science, which surprisingly not a lot of people know about. But I would say that also just in general, sort of that cross-industry collaboration, especially on the private side, you know, I don't see happening quite as much. The other surprising thing is, which I love that your book talks so much about space-based solar power, because of course, you know, just down the road at Caltech, they are working on space-based solar power, as are others. And I think it's really exciting to think about what that future might be. But it is disappointing that more people aren't aware of those potential opportunities that exist. It's upsetting, actually. It is, yeah. And, and, you know, I think you've probably experienced this as well. The derision, almost, that this concept is met with by certain senior people in the industry. It's always shocking to me. And then when you start to break down to them, okay, look, here's the math. And this part's not even theoretical. This is what it is. And again, people, they get hooked upon that 9% efficiency thing. And I suppose I shouldn't get too much into the weeds here, but all of the conversion issues. And then there's the other issue of, oh, you want to put a death ray in space. That's usually not far behind that. And of course, the technologies involved aren't that. And those microwave transmissions, you could stand in the beam. As a matter of fact, there is a researcher who part of his presentation is that he has 
the same power beaming at him from the back of the room while he's doing the presentation. It's a small version of it. It's like, okay, look, am I dying? And it's within the OSHA standard, let's put it that way. So if a bird flies through it, it's not going to turn into a roast turkey. But these are the sort of conversations we have to get past. And again, it's because the fuse is burning for climate change. We have to start taking action. I think the only serious way that we can start to bring terawatts of clean energy to bear is with solar power from space. Many environmentalists also are starting to think more about nuclear power. But again, the problem with nuclear power is I do not think you are going to get the approval to bring terawatts of nuclear power online. And of course, we've also seen the complications that might happen in conflict with the war in Ukraine. I mean, could that work? I suppose, but I do not see it even as remotely possible Mm -hmm. that hundreds of nuclear power plants will be permitted and built in such a short time frame to be able to deal with climate change. And one of the really great aspects of solar power from space is it could be built again, while Earth's surface is still going through disruption and turmoil and bring energy to bear where people need it in an entire hemisphere beneath that geosynchronous orbit spot of that one satellite. And of course, if we start to build more and more satellites, it gets better and better and better. Mm -hmm. So I will say that it is getting better, Mm -hmm. that I'm not greeted as often with derision when I mention it now. Yeah, that's really good to hear. We've got a lot of problems to figure out, so we need all the help we can get. And You know, one of the other themes in your book, of course, is the astropolitical tensions that exist in the new space race to attain resources, and namely the one occurring and likely to occur in the future between the U.S. and China. It's interesting because the way that you talk about it in the book, I mean, it really gets in the way of a lot of positive progress. What kind of research did you need to do to kind of envision out these potential conflicts? And do you believe that we will be able to, at some point, move past them in reality? My depiction of the situation with regard to China and the United States goes back to my first books. I mean, really, that theme is this, authoritarianism versus democracy and representative government. The West has entangled its economy with several authoritarian sovereign nations. And I remember years ago, having a conversation with a very wealthy investor. We were at dinner and he had an investment in Dubai and I had expressed concern about that saying, how do you reconcile a country where really people, they don't have a real voice in their government and then there's the vast majority of people there aren't actually citizens, balance all that. He said, well, how do you think we can best affect and make more democratic countries like that by sectoring them off or by engaging with them. And I thought that was interesting. But over the years since, I think that the data that's come back is it risks changing us more. So in other words, I think Western society is at risk of becoming more authoritarian. And again, as I say this, I don't want to say this in a way that it is cultural. I think it is structural. In other words, I think an authoritarian system is more susceptible to corruption because there are less people who are doing checks and balances. There's less transparency and there's less rights to even inquire. And so we've got a lot of money that is being earned from, let's say, activities that uh, are questionable that are pouring into the West. Uh, 40% of Miami real estate prior to the Ukraine war was being purchased by oligarchs from Russia and places like that. And that was really distorting prices. And we've seen this straight throughout the West. 
So how does that affect us? That ability to make huge amounts of money from sources that are anti-democratic. It's, it's really, it's a challenge. And so any story that I wanted to tell in space had to deal with this. And that is a real third rail. It's really radioactive topic because I endeavor to make it very clear that in the case of China, I have absolutely no problem with Chinese people, with Asian people, with anybody, any ethnicity. It is the structural aspect of authoritarianism that I find it's going to be a, a real challenge for us as we go out into space. What value system are we bringing with us when we go? What value system will prevail is a really huge question and one we have to answer before we're out there in a big way. No, certainly. And I think that that's something we talk about on this show a lot is that there's so much work here to be done, so many conversations to be had ahead of actually bringing any of these ideas to reality. That doesn't mean we should stop working on them, but we need to be really critical of kind of what this future is going to look like. And it was interesting as well to watch the internal struggle that seemed to take place with James Ty's character in the book, because at least from my perspective, he often saw things in black and white or rather micro versus macro and especially when it came to attempting to rescue his friends or resolving to solve Earth's issues, he seemed to often be kind of in conflict with himself. Was this an intentional choice on your part to kind of reveal the difficulty between balancing oneself personally and their ambitions for the future and then also kind of part of being this collective humanity? Well, that's a great observation because in some way, aren't we all? When it comes to climate change, we balance the quality in our life. And I think we've all been in a position where we said, I really want to do that, but should I? <laughs> where we're trying to balance our future impact. And I kind of pointed this out earlier in the book, this idea that people hundreds of years ago probably didn't have that, that is like, well, I would do this, except that I think it's going to harm later generations. But we have to consider that. In the case of JT, uh, James Ty. He was dealing with a number of things. And of course, the, let's say, struggle, I won't say conflict, but the struggle he had even with his own colleagues over priorities is one where he has both survivor's guilt from past things, feeling that so many other people had died for him to be able to be alive, that he really had an obligation to fulfill rescuing his friends. But he's in this ridiculous situation where depending on what they do, they can actually help all of Earth. But that is, of course, entirely theoretical that they could actually make an outsized impact like that. So he is trying to balance these two things, one of which is utterly ridiculous, this idea of like, really, it's my job to save the Earth? You know, it's, and it's making it more character than it is. I mean, they are in a position to affect the future and start a process that might lead to a good outcome for the maximum number of people on earth, if only they drop everything they're doing otherwise. And so trying to juggle those priorities, and yet that priority to save his friends is what is causing them to rapidly construct this infrastructure that will be immensely useful, I'd say critical for the earth. Mm. So the only reason it's happening is because they're trying to save their friends. Otherwise it would take place over decades or not at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's a real combination of elements thrown together. And in the midst of all that, you have people's personal feelings and their personal relationships. So that untidiness is how life works often. Very true. And I have to ask, but where do you think human space exploration and asteroid mining will be in 20 or 30 years from now? Well, this goes into my 
own megalomania, and that is that I designed and wrote these books to try to inspire a very particular type of person who might make this happen. And obviously, I wanted to inform the public, as we discussed earlier, I wanted them to understand what's at stake and what the opportunities are. But also, there is a subtext there, a deeper dimension of the story. And this is why I don't do hand-waving for the technology. I want people who went to the Colorado School of Mines and others who are innovators and entrepreneurs to read this and see, ah, maybe connect things. Because again, this is not all my ideas. I have gone and canvassed and talked to all of these people. And I think for scientists in particular, they very often have a super deep and focused knowledge about one or two or three things but don't cast as broad a net a lot. And they may be unaware of research, especially if it's not in any field that they're connected to. And by being an artist and walking around talking to all of these people, I can start to make connections that might not be immediately obvious. And it's my hope that certain type of reader who might read this and is perhaps in the industry or is in school of, and thinking of getting into the space industry might be inspired to say, well, wait a minute, December 13th, 2030, Say, there's time to mount a mission to the asteroid Ryugu. And by the way, the trajectory in that book is real. Oh, wow. It is the lowest Delta V trajectory that will occur for 100 years. That is an immensely rich asteroid, and it could be done. And so I really go down to that level of detail to try to present realistic scenarios in the sense that all of the science and technology is, to the greatest degree possible, real and maybe just a little further beyond that, but again, the trajectories, the science behind it, the chemistry behind it is all real to try to get people to shift that Overton window of what's acceptable discussion, even amongst space people yeah. to say, you know, uh, we could go colonize Mars, but you know, maybe here's a better idea. Maybe we don't do that just yet. Maybe we have a burning fuse to deal with climate change. And we've got to provide economic opportunity for billions of people while we're doing it. So maybe, just hear me out, we build this disciplinary commodity exchange, we obtain energy and resources in and around the moon and from near-Earth asteroids, and we start to really go and expand our industrial capacity in space so that by the time we're ready to go to Mars, we don't go with one ship, we send all sorts of things. But in the meantime, we rescue the Earth. How about we do that? I love that you wrote this to inspire people. I, I think that that's amazing. And I love that that's kind of an underlying dimension to your work. And I might be biased too, but your books, I think, would lend themselves so perfectly to a series of space thriller films, which would even expand the reach, I think, in terms of people that would be inspired by these plots. Would you be open to that opportunity if it presented itself? Well, this is the part where I wish that you would become a studio head because <laughs> then you could just green light that. No, yeah. I have done a number of film deals for my books. And, you know, it's usually, you know, this is what happened. Hollywood, they typically option 20 times more stuff than they actually produce. Mm. So I have read script adaptions for pretty much every one of my books and sometimes multiple script adaptions. Now, Delta V, I have not optioned before. And here, here's the thing. We did do a, some rounds of discussions and I, I won't say which channels, it's pretty much many channels, streaming channels and otherwise. And they already had a lot of space shows going on. And that, I, I kind of looked at it like, well, this goes back to science fiction and why I think we should in some ways just start calling it fiction because technology, it governs every aspect of our lives now. And so 
how many times have we been in a situation where you think to yourself, wow, this is some really sci-fi stuff I'm doing at this moment. And so when I say I write science fiction, I really write very near-term, almost present-day fiction. Mm -hmm. And so science fiction, it's not 500 years in the future. It is what's possible now. And so to say that, well, we've already got a space show is to me kind of funny because you know, at what point are we literally going to be up in space, have industry and let's say millions of people living in space? I don't think they'll just have one or two space shows at that point. <laughs> I yeah. think it's kind of like cell phones. You know, cell phones are in every show now because they've become the background of radiation, let's say, of, of our existence. And I think space, if we do it right, will become that. So hopefully we get a show done for it because I think it would make a very interesting show and it mm -hmm. certainly would reach a broader audience. Yeah, definitely. And will we be seeing a third book in the Delta V series? That is the plan. I want to do it as a trilogy. And again, the idea here was to start out from where we are in the present. And I wanted to show how we make that leap so that by the time it's over, you have arrived at that beginning of that great future. Now, whatever form that takes, but how do we get there? And again, I've read so much sci-fi, the Mars Trilogy, all that other stuff I've read that I really felt that that was what was missing. Now, there have been stories written in present day, you know, going to future, but I really wanted to make it comprehensive. And that's my goal here. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic motivation for writing these. And as a reminder to everyone listening, Critical Mass comes out January 31st, and you can pre-order it now on Amazon. Also, if you are in the Pasadena area, you can come see Daniel discussing Critical Mass live at Roman's Bookstore on February 1st at 6.30 p.m. I'll be there as well. But Daniel, where else will your book tour take you and how can people find out more information? First of all, my website, you could go to daniel-suarez.com, S-U-A-R-E-Z. But my Book tour is starting February 1st at Romans, and then I'll be in Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego. That's a bookstore, February 6th, and Books, Inc. in Palo Alto on February 8th, Poison Pen in Phoenix, Arizona, February 17th, and University Bookstore in Seattle on February 22nd. Well, definitely, I encourage people to uh, pick up a copy of both Delta V and Critical Mass, as well as all your books, but in particular for those listening who love space. And pivoting a bit here, Celestial Citizen is all about the idea that humans can become not only better stewards of Earth, but also better interplanetary citizens. In your opinion, what is one important way in which people can work toward becoming celestial citizens today? I would say by inspiring a sense of urgency when it comes to human endeavors in deep space. In other words, to convey to others that sense of urgency that space can help us solve problems here on Earth. This episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast is in part sponsored by the Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program. This first of its kind interdisciplinary program offers certificate, Master of Science, and PhD degrees for professionals around the world interested in the emerging field of extraterrestrial resources. The program focuses on developing core knowledge and design practices for effective and responsible identification, extraction, and use of resources in the solar system to enhance space exploration and enable the new space economy. To learn more about the Mines Space Resources Program, 
educational opportunities, and research activities, check out its webpage at space.minds.edu. Thank you again to the Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program for your sponsorship this year. Okay, and now we're going to do something a little different here. This is our lightning round of quick questions, and you can feel free to give a brief explanation as to why you picked what you did or no explanation at all. You can just give <laughs> us an answer, leave everyone in mystery. Are you ready? I, I guess I am. Are, are we scoring this? <laughs> no score. I mean, audience oh, okay, scored, okay. maybe. I don't know. There's definitely <laughs> popular answers, but <laughs> okay. Would you rather live on the moon Mars or in a spin gravity space station? A spin gravity space station, if it's like a Bernal sphere or an Anil sphere, something like that, because with that, we can recreate the environment in which we evolve, the right pressure, the right gravity or artificial gravity in this case. And presumably, if you're dealing with millions of tons of mass like that, radiation will not be a problem. As a matter of fact, you you might have an even safer radiation environment than the surface of the Earth at that point. So I would say definitely a spin gravity station because from there you can go to the moon. You can go elsewhere. That's true. That's very true. And on that space station, your favorite space hobby would be what? Oh, I would think it would have to be astronomy. Mm. You know, talk about having great telescopes and perfect clarity. That would be fascinating. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, your favorite asteroid or type of asteroid? <laughs> I think I know. It's got to be Ryugu. The Ryugu asteroids, one kilometer in diameter, 450 million tons, you know, give or take. And just recently, I was looking at, you know, as one does, looking at the chemical composition that was returned from the Hayabusa 2 mission, and it does indeed have nitrogen in its regolith. So it has these great resources, cobalt, iron, nickel, and all sorts of things, tremendously useful. And again, you've got certain keyholes in its orbital trajectory where to reach it requires less energy than to reach the surface of our own moon. Now that is tremendously useful, especially because you don't have to escape its gravity well to bring those resources back at certain key intervals. So very exciting asteroid as far as I'm concerned. Oh, and also it may strike the earth and become a damn near extinction event if it does. So mining it, I don't think uh, too many people will be upset about it. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't think so. (laughs) Okay, your favorite space mission, crewed or robotic? Oh, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. So I'll, I'll show my math as I do this. Crewed missions can inspire people, and of course, having skin in the game. I mean, ultimately, if we wanna grow as a species, we need to go into space and we need to bring our economy into space. And that's how we grow our economy. For instance, if all we send are robots, we're not really growing out, so there's that. But then on the flip side of it is, with robots, we've done some absolutely amazing missions that have brought back imagery and data that is jaw-dropping and has fundamentally changed what we think. So my answer is both. (laughs) I have no preference. It, It entirely depends on the mission. I'm gonna, Squirrel out of that one and just say, it's just, you need both. Yeah. I, I really no, do think true. we need both. Yeah, it's definitely true. Okay, too many companies trying to mine asteroids or not enough? Well, not enough now. The other thing is that obviously the more that do it, we will start to build some sort of legal regimen that we can use to manage this process. But 
you know, I think some of the estimates show that there might be half a million near-Earth objects. It'll be a while until there's too many. Mm. If, we, if we have that problem of too many, that's the problem to have. At <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. You already mentioned, you know, a little bit earlier about some inspiration, but I guess your favorite sci-fi author or one that has really inspired you in your work. There's a lot of them. I really love Kim Stanley Robinson's books, a Mars trilogy. One of the things that I loved about that is even later, after winning the Hugo Award for each and every one of them, he walked it back to say that, you know, that's not how it would go based on new data. Mm. And I really respect that. You could put so much into those books and then later say, well, you know, it wouldn't happen quite like that. But Isaac Asimov, obviously, I think I'd throw George Orwell into that, although he's more allegorical when you, and it's not really Mm sci-fi, but in a way it's talking about a future. Let's see, Aldous Huxley, Mm. Neil Stevenson, uh, Cryptonomicon, Snow Crash. Oh, and also Bruce Sterling, his book, Distraction, I always bring up to people. I think a lot of people don't talk about that much nowadays, but Distraction is a really interesting book. And also Bruce had just a great way with a facility with language. He's just, the way he turns phrases, he's very good. So is Neil. And did I say William Gibson? Also Neuromancer is another. I I have a lot of favorites. Yeah, that's a great list though. Okay, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, I'm going to add one more science to the last question. Rendezvous with Rama, Arthur C. Clarke. That's another one. Mm. But anyway, sorry. Uh, So Star Wars or Star Trek, I would say first series of Star Trek to me, because that really was so groundbreaking in Mm -hmm. so many ways. And for this positive portrayal of the future, I really love that. Well, I think there will be a lot of Star Wars fans that are not happy with that answer. But actually, most of the people I talk to on here, I think are first and foremost Star Trek fans. Very interesting. By the way, then then I would just throw this sort of, uh, you know, hand grenade into their midst, which is, well, which trilogy of Star Wars, you know, because mm. that, that'll start a, an argument amongst themselves and then I could just walk away. <laughs> it's very true. There's a lot of tension in that uh, debate, to be sure. Just a bit, apparently. Yeah. Okay. Permanently grounded on Earth or a one-way trip to Mars? Oh, uh, permanently grounded on Earth because I think I might be able to do something more useful here. And I don't know if you remember from Delta V, I'm not super thrilled about the Mars colonization plan. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you were going to bring that up in that one, but... Yeah, I've had lots of interesting conversations about that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the potlatch chapter in particular. But if you were to ask me Alpha Centauri one-way trip, nah, mm. ooh, that, that could be interesting, but then I'd have to think about it. But for now, I'd say permanently grounded on Earth and writing books. Okay, let's say you get the opportunity to live off Earth just temporarily, Would you rather live underground, like in a lunar lava tube, on the surface, or in an orbiting space station? Again, I think I know the answer here. Yeah, I think you know the answer here. I'd say orbiting space station if it's of sufficient size and, you know, mass, I should say. And let's say you are sent on a long-duration mission. What's more important, choosing your crew, choosing the food, or choosing the destination? I wouldn't even call it crew. I'd call it team. I mean, choosing the correct team is everything. It's, it has to be the team. Last one here. In 50 years, we'll all be what? We'll either be much better off or much worse off. And that we are standing at that crossroads now, right now. The way we choose, the choices we make will determine the answer to that question. And if I think we choose correctly, that is we choose the direction of more resources and more energy for all of the people of Earth, you know, with due 
attention to the damage we might cause and, and speaking with each other, we'll learn to work across borders, to think more globally as a species, to avoid extinction and create a bright future for ourselves. So I would say we're either going to be in a much better situation or a much worse one. Well, I think that's a great answer and an answer that I hope galvanizes a lot of people to take immediate action to try to improve that future outcome. But what an amazing conversation today. Daniel, thank you so much for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today, getting to chat with you about your book, Critical Mass, as well as your creative inspiration behind the story and your thoughts on the future of space exploration. So everyone listening, if you haven't read Delta V, and of course, Critical Mass is coming out in just a matter of days here, you really are truly missing out. So grab your copies either on Amazon or like we said, if you're local to any of those areas, support your local bookstore and pick up copies there. Thank you again, Daniel, for taking the time out to speak with me today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. And to our community of Celestial Citizens, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. Also, a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, then check out celestialcitizen.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. And be sure to sign up for Continuum Celestial Citizen's newsletter on Substack. You can find the link to all of this on our website. If you're interested in supporting the mission of Celestial Citizen, you can always reach out to learn more about opportunities to sponsor this podcast. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We want to hear what you have to say. So let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media. Or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium. So drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on. 
and leave a stellar review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space. Thank you.